Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon, and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Coming up on our 30th anniversary next month, Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning, where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience download previous broadcasts. You can also go to the free app SoundCloud and download previous broadcasts there as well. This Thursday after the 6 p.m. news, we will rebroadcast today's show. It's always a great idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour, give me the best opportunity to do my best to answer your question. I take today's calls first, and then I take today's texts. If we have any outstanding texts, which we do not, I go back and answer those. And then on a holiday weekend, if you don't call or text, I will just bloviate for the next hour. That ought to motivate you. So let's get started. First of all, happy holidays. The big news in the U.S. financial markets really occurred around what happened at the last Federal Open Market Committee meeting of the Federal Reserve when Chairman Powell came out and basically said, we think we may be done raising interest rates and we think that inflation is coming down not to our target but towards our target. And we think we may, in fact, start to reduce interest rates next year. And there's something called the point, I believe it's called the point chart, where the members of that committee, some of whom are permanent and some of whom are rotating between different bank presidents, predict where the Fed funds rate or the overnight rate will be in the next period of time. And they predicted that the Fed would lower short-term interest rates on three occasions at 0.25% or 25 basis points each. The stock market rallied and the bond market rallied, and in fact, the futures market suggests that investors are actually more enthusiastic about what Fed policy will do in 2024 and maybe have even more drops in interest rates. And then just yesterday, the news came out for the first time in a long time, the index of inflation, which the Fed prefers, called the PCE, the, per, let me think of this, this is a Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, that's it. Boy, do I have a lot of knowledge that's almost useless. In any event, that it had a negative compared to the previous period, meaning it was down as opposed to flat or up. Consumer confidence, as measured by the longstanding Michigan survey, actually showed an uptick as well. So we came into this year, uh, I would say, anticipating a recession. That would be my reading on listening to a lot of economists. And as the year went along and the recession did not come, and as consumer spending continued, one reason some recession did not come, and employment stayed high and unemployment stayed low and job openings stayed robust, economists began to push out into a later time period their anticipation of inflation. And the, uh, I guess you would say the best possible outlook went by the interesting phrase soft 
landing where the Fed would accomplish its uh, goal of lowering inflation without having to push the economy into a recession. That soft landing scenario is becoming more popular on Wall Street. I still listen to some economists who, for whom I have great respect and who have a long track record who are not necessarily convinced that we are through this whole thing and that we're not going to have a recession. But I must say that optimism is abounding. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. Given the performance of the Magnificent Seven and their resulting outsized weight in the S&P 500, and considering the reversion to the mean concept to which you so frequently refer, does an equal-weighted S&P fund make sense as a replacement or complement to a straight-up S&P 500 fund? So this is a, obviously a, 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 first of all, thank you for your text. It's an excellent text and a regular listener. And what she or he is talking about is that the Standard & Poor 500 is a market capitalization-weighted index. Every day, I suppose every minute during the trading day, the price of a company's sh- uh, stock times the number of shares outstanding determines its relative weighting in the index. And Michael Hartnett at um, Bank of America came out with the term Magnificent Seven. For those of you who are old like I am, that refers to a cowboy western movie with Yule Brenner many years ago. And there were seven stocks, and I will not be able to remember them all, but you will recognize their names. They include Tesla and Alphabet, which is Google, and Microsoft, and Apple, and NVIDIA, um, and I think there's a couple others. I haven't, hadn't, didn't count how many I just said. Were just spectacular. NVIDIA was probably the winner up over 250%. And because of their weighting in the index, they really drove the index. And so commentators have talked about the narrow leadership of this market. It did start to broaden out some after this Fed, um, last Fed meeting. But your concern, in my view, is legitimate. Uh, I, <clears throat> I prefer the total stock market versus the S&P 500. Throughout this year, it has lagged, but not by much, the S&P 500, frankly, until yesterday. Uh, and I use here, and as you know, I don't recommend funds or ETFs. I just use these because they're popular and because you cannot own directly an index. The SPY, which is the Spiders S&P 500 year-to-date return, according to Morningstar today, was 25.75%. And the Vanguard total stock market, VTI, was 25.74%. There are over 3,000 names, maybe even 3,200-plus names in the total stock market. There are 504 names in the S&P 500. The reason there are more than 500 is some companies like Alphabet have two share classes. So I like the VTI. Now, it's still market capitalization weighted, 
And so what you're thinking about is taking one that, say, gives 500 names and gives each of them equal weighting. I cannot argue against that um, because it does deal with the narrow leadership that we've experienced in 2023. I would just say I like the I like the total stock market better, but I can't argue with you certainly at this point adding something other than the S&P 500 given that narrow leadership does make sense. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I'm going to take a break. It's a good time to call or text. And when we come back, I'm going to visit with Russ about asset allocation. I will be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon until 5. And when you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Russ, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, got a question about asset allocations and yes. uh, my RMDs. Yes. I've always tried to keep my al- asset allocation around 60-40. Yes. And with my taxable account, I have uh, a couple index funds and an mm-hmm. international fund index and a small cap value index. And I've okay. tried to keep the bond and income producing funds in the uh, IRA and Roth okay. accounts. Okay, I understand. I started taking my RMDs about three years ago. Yeah. And that's depleting my bond funds. Yes. And not sure how to get that back yes. into balance. What funds yeah. or investments would you yes. recommend yes. that I could put in my yes. taxable account to get my asset allocation yes. back closer to 60 40? Yeah. yeah. Well, good for you. So what Russ is doing is he understands the single biggest determinant of return and the single biggest determinant of risk is asset allocation, which is a fancy way of saying, what's the mix of stuff that you have? The more you have in equities or stocks, the higher your anticipated return and the higher your anticipated risk. Conversely, the more you have in bonds, the lower your anticipated return and the lower your anticipated risk. Now, stocks and bonds do not always move in the same direction. Sadly, in 2022, they moved in the same direction, which was down. But the last time I checked correlation, if something's perfectly correlated with something else, the correlation is not about, it's 1.0. And high-grade corporate bonds, when compared to large-cap stocks, have about a 0.40. So that's a modest to fairly low correlation. So what I would do if I were in your shoes is I, as you're doing once a year after you take your required minimum distribution, is you look at that allocation and you add bond funds or bonds in your, uh, your taxable account. Now, because you're an index person and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever, you can always use an indexed fund, the largest one, and again, I'm not recommending uh, because my lawyers would shoot me if I did, but the, the Vanguard Total Bond Market, BND, or the Barclays AG, the iShares AGG, 
those seek to match the broad bond market. The ag's uh, total return year to date is 5.21, BND's 5.38. So you see they're very similar. Now, if you were in a really high tax bracket, um, then you would want to do something that had a similar duration in a tax-exempt uh, index fund. But I suspect as a retire, you've got to, I mean, what's happened is you're, we're talking hundreds and thousands of dollars a year of, of taxable income before that makes a lot of sense. So you could just, you could sell some of your stock index funds at favorable long-term capital gains rates of maybe zero, 15, or maximum 20%, and that's just on the gain, and reposition into a bond index, you might as well use the exchange-traded fund because they're the cheapest, and you reinvest—pardon <coughs> me—you reinvest the dividends, and off you go. Now, you—if you chose active, then you'd want to look at the nature of the credit quality of the bonds, the duration, etc. But if you—if you like indexing in bonds, then I'd use uh, ETFs like the two that I suggested. And you make a once-a-year change in your allocation when you take out the RMD. The taxes on the sales side is going to be is going to be modest, and you sustain your asset allocation in that fashion. In my view, Russ. All right, uh, I'm looking at tax efficiency too. Putting bonds in taxables going to raise my tax efficiency a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be tax inefficient. But I'm going to pull out the twenty. I'm going to pull out the 2024 tax table here. What is your? What do you anticipate in 2024, Russ? Will be your taxable income? Taxable income? Yes, sir. Uh, around a hundred thousand. Okay. Are you single or married? Filing jointly. Married jointly. Okay. Everything over ninety-four thousand three hundred, up to two hundred one thousand, is taxed at. 22%. So the vast bulk of your income from 23,000 to 94,000 taxed at only 12%. So what would happen is you would take that RMD, that's taxable income. If that puts you in $100,000 or more, you're only paying on the long-term capital gain 15% tax. So you're paying 22% tax on your marginal income tax rate but only 15% on the index funds that you're selling to rebalance your portfolio. And if you really believe, as, as I think you do and I do, and, and, and neither one of us is getting any younger, if you really believe in the 60-40 allocation, then I think it's worth paying a little bit of long-term capital gains tax, Russ. Okay. All right. And that makes sense, I guess. Just getting <laughs> allocations getting up there close to eighty twenty. And, <laughs> and I need to get it back down. A yeah, little bit, you know, it, it's it's just terrible when your investment strategy works and you have to pay taxes. I hate that when that happens. <laughs> yeah, it's that, a good position to be in. <laughs> it sure is. Well, good luck to you, my friend. <laughs> thank you. Merry you, Christmas. And you, and you as well. Thank you. You're thank listening. You. you bet. You're listening to Money Talk. On News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512 836 0590. This is a good time for me to read this out. If you've listened the last few weeks, I've been whining at you about the ability to harvest losses. Obviously, this only pertains 
if you have investments in your own name in a taxable account, not an IRA, for example. And it's possible because last year, as I alluded to momentarily, is was a bad year for stocks and bonds. And you may have bond funds, and nothing wrong with them, but because you've reinvested dividends, you may well have some taxable losses. I, as you know, I said at the top of the broadcast, I always take calls and then texts, and I just got a text, so I'm not going to bore you with that until I come back if I don't have something else. Here we go. Let's, let's go down here. Here we go. Carl, my current plan has me selling my primary home in 2027, is that's when I reach 65 and make my secondary home my primary. My concern is the capital gains made on the same of my current made the cap. My concern the capital gains made on the same of my current home would have the Medicare folks want to charge me a higher premium rate. That's correct. That windfall is unique, is unquestionably an exception in my situation, as no recent tax year approaches exceeding the higher premium threshold trigger, nor would my income after the sale trigger. Is there some way to ask the Medicare folks for an exception based on the situation? My answer is I, the answer is yes. I remember this question coming up sometime this year. And there is actual, you can go to, I would guess, the IRS. I would do some work, or if you have an accountant or a CPA, because this happens. This is a common issue. And for everybody else, what we're talking about is that this person has a regular income, and then they sell their residence, and that, that income, sub, because, because of that, balloons, and it throws them into a different place and more of their social security is held back because of their income. They pay higher premiums for Medicare and it's a temporary phenomenon. My understanding is the answer is yes, you can appeal that. And I think you should. So I can't give you the name of the form, uh, but I do know that it exists. So good luck to you. I think you do have that opportunity. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. So as I was saying, you may well have some holdings for which there is a loss, and you may have the opportunity to take a benefit of that. Now, it can get confusing when you have a lot of capital gains and losses that include both long-term, meaning you've held the positions for longer than a year, and short-term, meaning you've held the positions for less than a year. And long-term gains have a lower tax rate than short-term gains. And to offset either type of these gains, you have to group like with like. This is sometimes called netting capital gains and losses. Here's an overview of the basic rules. Long-term capital gains minus long-term capital losses. That's your net long-term gain. Short-term capital losses versus short-term capital gains would be your net short-term capital losses. So you take your net long-term capital gains and you minus your net short-term capital losses 
to get your net capital gains. And then if those losses exceed, may offset, or I beg your pardon, the losses that exceed gains may offset ordinary income up to $3,000, and any excess is carried forward to the following year. So it's detailed, but it's a big deal and it's important. It's also time for me to take a break for the news. We have all of our lines available, no incoming texts. Now's a good time to do one or both at 512-836-0590. Stay around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. We're here for another half hour. Money Talk is a broadcast about financial and investment planning. Call or text 512-836-0590. So, as you know, if you're a regular listener, every Saturday I go through uh, the investable ways to invest in indexes as well as some active ways <clears throat> to see how things are going. And I just as mentioned to an earlier call or text, the uh, Vanguard total stock market year-to-date up 25.74, the Spider S&P 500 up 25.75. Hold on to your hat, the Fidelity NASDAQ, symbol O-N-E-Q, up 45.46%. And the Vanguard XUS, which is an international, pretty much developed markets, meaning less of emerging markets, up a handsome 14.48%. And so I did this, I think, last week, but I just find this really interesting. So if I had taken $1,000 and put it in the ONEQ in 2021, the first business day of 2021, I would have had a return, according to Morningstar today, of 22.11%. I love it. I start bloviating, and this text come in. So hang on. We're going to find out what this one is. Hello, Carl. What are your thoughts on moving former employer 401ks over to an IRA? I have about two... Oh, I see this. It's not your fault when you text me. It just breaks up in between the middle of words here. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I have about 25% of my net worth in a former employer 401k. What considerations should I have to determine whether to leave it there or move it over to my IRA managed by a financial advisor? And my last question is, if I were to do so, do that now with the market so high, how however, how over what period of time should I dollar cost average into my investments? That is a terrific question. And it's terrific because you're not the only person who encounters this. It sounds like <clears throat> you're fortunate in that your former employer will allow you to keep your money there. A lot of them don't. And, and frankly, they have some ongoing responsibility to you and you don't work there any longer and they'd prefer that not to happen because you pass away and your spouse is your beneficiary and she or he doesn't like the way things are going and now they come and 
knock on the door with their attorney to your former employer, so they'd prefer the money go away. It sounds like that that is not a concern to your former employer. So then it really comes down to there are two or three things. I guess you can say they, whoever they are, put the menu together of your investment choices at the 401k. They had a due diligence process. They looked at both performance as well as the costs of investing, the expenses, came up with a variety of options, maybe some target date funds, perhaps not. And because your money is in with presumably lots of other people, the costs of the 401k are likely lower than with your financial advisor. And over time, costs eat into returns. Okay, full stop. On the other hand, the fact that you have an existing relationship indicates to me that you have confidence in this person and you believe that she or he has the three, the three, you've heard me this before, the three important characteristics of integrity and intelligence and experience. My experience is that there are two kinds of people around the decision of whether or not to have an advisor. There's the do-it-yourself investor who has both the time and the interest to be his or her own investment or financial advisor. And the beauty then is that they can do this themselves. You can roll this over to a, to a Charles Schwab, for example, or to a Vanguard or to a Fidelity and pick the funds and do it yourself and keep your expenses really low. Or you can say, no, I really want someone else to oversee this. I want to do my own income taxes or I want a CPA. And then the other issue is, as you reach retirement and beyond, if you're married, is there, and, and if you're the person responsible for the investments for your, for your marriage, what happens if you predecease your spouse? Then who is going to help him or her? So these are really kind of, some of these are really non-financial considerations, but they're truly, truly important. Of course, I can't know the nature of the relationship with your advisor, but I have to presume that in most cases, the marketplace drives return. If you go out and look for a CPA and you say, I want a CPA in a medium-sized, locally-based firm, I suspect that if you took the time to interview four different firms, their costs for tax preparation would be very, very similar because the marketplace drives their fee schedule. The same would be true with your financial advisor. So if you're not a do-it-yourself investor, then I would lean towards doing the IRA rollover. Will it be more expensive? The answer is yes. However, I've got to tell you, what something costs is a lot easier question to ask than it is to answer. What's the value of knowing that someone's looking over, your, not your shoulder, someone's looking over your assets? If you're with what's called an advisory fee-based advisor, she or he has fiduciary responsibility, that's a big deal. That means that they have to he or she has to act in your best interest. 
put your interests in front of theirs. They have what the law is called a duty of care, duty of care, and they can receive no transaction-based compensation. So that eliminates the appearance of conflict of interest. And if that's the kind of relationship you have and you add your 401k to your existing relationship, if they have a tiered fee schedule, the more money you have with this person, likely, just based on the marketplace, the lower the incremental fee. So I, without knowing more, I would lean toward doing the rollover, understanding there will be additional costs. And as long as you understand that and you, and you should ask your advisor to fully disclose what the costs are because there'll be, there'll be two layers of costs. There's a layer of cost of the underlying investments. So if, you, if, you, if your advisor uses mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, people at Vanguard and Fidelity and everywhere else don't work for free, so that's easy to figure out. Then there's the advisory fee as well. So it's a long-winded answer, and I know I'm hopefully helping other people beside you because I just it's such an important question. So I think if you were a do-it-yourself person, I would also do the IRA rollover, but I would do it to my, you know, to I said to a custodian where I could take care of the investments. I do like the idea of consolidation, particularly as we grow older. I encounter people who have gotten older and they're in their 70s and 80s and they have a lifetime of employment perhaps at different places and they and, and they have stuff pretty much in a lot of different places and they start to think to themselves you know upon my demise this is going to be hard for whoever follows me it would be good to have things consolidated and because these are financial assets and not real estate. It's not like you got a rental house in Florida and you got a rental house in Colorado. These are financial assets that can be easily consolidated. And then upon your demise, then your either your executor or your spouse or whomever will have a much easier time of taking care of your affairs. Thanks for the text. It's time for me to take a break. It's going to be a brief one, so don't go away. 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. I told you that'd be short. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. And do I have allergies? Yes, I do. Welcome to Central Texas. We have all of our lines available or text at 512-836-0590. So as I was bloviating previously, if you own the Fidelity ONEQ, which seeks to match the return of the NASDAQ, you had a great year so far this year, up over 45%. If you'd started on the first business day of 2021, you had a 22% return, and then in 2022, you had a 32% loss, and then you have this huge gain this year. So what I did was I just did a hypothetical and said, if I had taken $1,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, the numbers are, are kind of, as you'll see, not really relevant, but if I'd taken $1,000 and started in 2021, 
Well, at the end, because I was up 22%, I'd have $1,122. And then the next year, I was down 32%. I would take that $1,222 times 32% and subtract that. That's my ending value in 2022. And then take that value times the 45%, which is my year-to-date return, to see where I am. And what I came up with, and math was not my major, what I came up with is that that $1,000 starting in 2021 through Friday brought you to $1,307. So if you divide that by three years, and it's not compounded, and just divided one, that, that gain, 307 by three, pretty obviously, it's about a 10.2% annual return. Now, I would argue that's darn good, especially during part of that time when interest rates were so low that your returns on cash were ridiculous. However, we don't always, we don't, not always, we never know where we are in any cycle. I don't care if it's oil and gas or real estate or stocks or bonds. And so if we got this money and we put it into the market at the beginning of 2020. Two, in the first year we were down 32% on our $1,000 and then we then gained 45%. Here's where we are at the end of two years, $987. So we're still after two years, even with a 45% gain, we're down less, we have less than we started with by about 13%. That's the lesson is Twofold. One, you do this for the long term because you don't know where you are in any cycle. And secondly, one of the keys to making money over long periods of time is not losing lots of money in bad times. And why even if you love the NASDAQ, you don't put all your money there. I realized that just now that in that text, the person asked another question and I apologize. I didn't answer it. So let me go back to that. Okay. What, with the market now so high, how over what period of time should I dollar cost average into my investments? <laughs> I just told you you can't predict the future. Now you're asking me to predict the future. Here's what I learned. I have searched far and wide, high and low, and I cannot come up with any statistical data that indicates whether putting the money in all at one time or dollar cost averaging is better. Because if you had put the money, if you had dollar cost averaged in 2022, as everything went to heck in a handbasket, and then it turned around and went up in 2023, you looked like a genius. But if you had dollar cost averaged in 2023 versus putting the money in at the beginning of the year, not so much. So I would say to you, I've come down to this conclusion. When you have a large sum of money and you're investing in the financial markets, if you have some fear about losses, but you still need to be in those markets, then dollar cost averaging is good for you. Because if the market goes down, you can say to yourself, look, this month I'm buying more than I did last month with the same amount of dollars because prices are lower. So you get a lower average cost if you get a volatile market. So I would take six months. There's nothing magic about six months. But if we have a sell-off, 
I mean, this year the market went down in September and October and then came screaming back up in November. So if I had to guess, I'd say six months. Sorry I didn't get to that sooner. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Joe from Leander, you're on the air. How may I help? Time for your weekly. Thank you for your help. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and just understand that you have plenty of friends with this Cedarama. Oh, my gosh. I just felt a couple of days ago, I went to bed at 9.30 at night, slept for nine hours. I felt so bad. <laughs> well, hell, I'm 79. I sleep longer than that anyway. <laughs> well, okay. two questions. Number one. You mentioned this uh, potential for a uh, application for this one-time exception yes, for yes, you yes. Well, is there? Do you figure there's a time limit on asking for that? Because that's exactly what happened to me last year, and this was the first I heard about a potential yes. exemption. Do I, yes. do I just sick my CPA on this? Yes, absolutely. Block? Yes, absolutely. Because I remember this came up before, and we had. Uh, an expert listener who came to me with the answer that, yes, you can make a special filing. So you bet. You go to your CPA, Joe, and tell her or him what happened and see what they can do. And if it turns out, by the way, that I'm mistaken, you call me back and let me know because I wanted the rest of our listeners to know that. But that's my that's my recollection that you have that opportunity. I don't know what the time limit is, if any. Well, if you're wrong, it's a straight-up cinch. I'm going to call you back. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) And I have a second question. You know, I have fooled, and I literally mean that, fooled (laughs) with uh, financial issues for a long time, and I always have heard nothing but the benefits of dollar-cost averaging into your investments. Right. But, But I don't think I've ever heard anybody make a peep about what happens to dollar cost averaging out of your investment. Right. And, you know, if you think about that, here's what I've watched people do. Some people take their required minimum distribution at the beginning of the year. Some take it at the end of the year. Some people who are retired and have money in their account, whether it's in their own individual or joint account or it's in the IRA, what yeah. they do, what they do is let's just me use a big number. So I have friends who have say, let's say they have a million dollars in the IRA and they want twenty five hundred dollars a month distribution, which is thirty thousand dollars a year. And so what they do is they set up uh, what's called an ACH when money comes out of their IRA and goes directly to their bank checking account, and their dollar cost averaging out. What that eliminates, and I know you know this, is it eliminates their taking the money at, at one time, and then the market going straight up. But as I said about dollar cost averaging in, you know, there's no, I can't find uh, a test, a, a statistical study that says one's better than the other because you and I have been around long enough to know that about every, about every third year, everything goes to heck in a handbasket, but we don't see it coming. And, sure. you know, I mean, you just the last three years are perfect. 21 was a good year. 
22 was a horrible year. It was the, for the classic 60 stock 40 bond I've read. It's the worst year in 40 years, for heaven's sakes. And then this year has been great for stocks, even though we had a decline towards the third quarter. So you can't, I mean, I would just say it really comes down to a comfort level deal. I like the idea when someone's in a regular withdrawal program. I do that a lot in my practice. I think that makes a lot of sense rather than a lump sum. But we have plenty of people who, you know, say, give me the money now and I'll move on down the road. So it it's not necessarily applies to a required minimum distribution. But if you're in the distribution for your 79 and you've saved and invested and now you're drawing money out to supplement your Social Security or any other form of income, dollar cost averaging out is a very comfortable thing to do. With one, yeah. with one major piece of advice, don't do it in such a way that it upsets your mix, right? You don't want to change your asset allocation because then you'll no. really, you got to be sure you, whatever your target is, you want to stay on that target because by dollar cost averaging out, it forces you to rebalance. In other words, that one person who said he was up to 80% in stocks, if he was if he was in a withdrawal stage, let's say, he'd be taking more from his stock funds than he would from his bond funds to get back into balance. And then the next time the stock market goes down, he'll be taking more from his bond funds. That's I like that a lot, frankly. Yeah, yeah I've just always seen it in, in life in general, anything yes. that's super good one way yes. uh, can have a nasty little rattle on the table <laughs> on, 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 the, on the other end. And I, I took myself security 62, but, you know, the grandkids are saying, well, we get it down, get it down, get it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're, they're looking for Christmas time every <laughs> year. <laughs> All right. Well, Merry Christmas to you, and thanks for calling. Thank you. <laughs> you bet. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. If you sneak in with a call or a text now, I may have a few minutes to help you. 512-836-0590. Uh, let me think about what else. I talked about harvesting losses. I'm looking at my list of bloviation list here. I've talked about the impact of large drawdowns using the ONEQ as an example. Um, here's one, I would just say this is really pretty specialized, even arcane, but if you're listening on the 23rd of December, you're probably a pretty regular listener to Money Talk. If you are, you've heard me kind of just bloviate forever about the difference between diversification and correlation, and that I always bring up 2008 because it was the, it was the year from hell. And if you had U.S. stocks and foreign stocks and real estate investment trusts and high-yield bonds and commodities, you were fully diversified and you lost your shirt, if not your trousers. But if you had managed futures in there or if you had treasuries in there, guess what? You still went down, but you went down less. And that's the magic of those large drawdowns that I was talking about, which you want to avoid. But you pay a price for that. So last year, when pretty much everything stunk it up, uh, managed futures were up. Uh, and I was looking at a fund that was up 16.84% uh, last year and up 5.14% the year before when stocks were up a lot. And year-to-date, it's down 4.08%. And so you might look at that and say, gosh, Carl, why the heck would I want to own a fund that's down 
4.808%, and the stocks are doing well, and now bonds are doing well. And why would I do that? And the answer is it's homeowner's insurance. You don't put that in your portfolio. You don't buy homeowner's insurance and say, boy, now I just can't wait for hail to damage the heck out of it. I hope I have to get a new roof. I'm sure glad I've done that. Of course not. But you, want, but you don't want to be out there and have hail damage and not be able to take care of that new roof expense. And the same with trend following. And when I talked at the top of the broadcast about how the market just took off after the Federal Open Market Committee came out and Chairman Powell came out and said, well, looks like we might be done raising rates. Looks like we might lower rates next year. Depends on the data. We're data dependent. And these managed futures funds are trend following. So the trend was down in September and October. So what what? They were short stocks. The trend was down for bonds, so they were short bonds. And the trend was up for the dollar, so they were long the dollar. And all of that reversed. Stocks took off and went up, so that was a losing proposition. Bonds took off and went up. Had one of the best days in years and years, beers and years. And the dollar weakened, which went the wrong way as well. This is the price you pay for correlation, but in years like 2022, you'll be glad that you did. Well, I want to thank Jack today for stepping in and doing a great job, and I want to wish you happy holidays. We have a whole lot to be grateful for and to remind you that, yes, even though it will be the 30th of December, I will be here. So next Saturday, after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 